Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trello Church. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for uh, gathering with us this morning during this time of social distancing. Uh, I pray you are well. Um, I'd actually like to to just at kind of at the outset, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. I've been uh, praying a lot for uh, those in our community that are um, doctors, nurses, techs. Um, this is a ridiculously challenging time to be uh, in that line of work. And uh, I opened up a thread on Facebook just offering to pray, pray for anybody who had medical professionals um, that they would like prayer for. And, and um, I've got um, a couple hundred names on that list now that I have prayed for and, and I continue praying for. So uh, let's just pause and, uh, and, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, um, Lord, you are Lord over the storm. That in everything that happens, we, uh, Lord, may find ourselves um, in chaos. We might find ourselves full of anxiety. We might find ourselves uh, in need. But, Lord, you um, are never in need. Uh, that you are our true north star. You are the one who is ultimately guiding all things, even the storms of life, to a given end because you are the God who redeems and you are the God who restores. And so we thank you that we come to you in this season of need and ask, Lord, that you would give special grace to those that we love who are in need of protection, of energy, of wisdom. Lord, I think of Jason. I think of Andrea. I think of Kyle. I think of Bree. I think of Kara. Lord, I think of Hannah, I, I, I think of Eric, uh, I think of, of, of um, Mark, uh, Kylie, and uh, Lord, so many, many others. Um, and, uh, and I would encourage you right now, those of you who are praying with me, to lift up the names of those that you love, uh, that are medical professionals or, or in other ways first responders are, are, are made more vulnerable in this season. Lord, we pray for your hand of protection to be upon them. We pray, Lord, that you would work in them uh, through this season and that you would work through them, that they would be a blessing to others even as they grow in their experience of their blessing to you, that they would be made, uh, Lord, to experience your grace more deeply and the presence of your joy, that they would experience uh, the genuine strength of faith and that they would be firmly anchored in their hope, that you would be working in them to bless them, even as they are working so diligently to be a blessing to others. We pray for this rich blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, uh, before we jump in, a couple things I want to remind you about. If you aren't aware, we mentioned this last week, Trailhead Kids, um, parents, we have some, some resources available to you to be a support to you. All you got to do is go to facebook.com slash trailhead kids edwardsville and uh, you'll be able to access this week's current lesson um we are we are using the gospel project material and, and it'll be a blessing to you we've got videos activity pages lesson plans um for all kids uh kate johnston our director of, of trailhead kids and others are working diligently to put that together we're also excited to let you know that this week we are launching something new uh worship wednesdays with brian um, so Brian is going to, along with his kids, uh, Wednesdays at noon, is that what we landed on? Wednesdays at noon are going to be leading a worship time on Facebook Live, uh, so that you can worship with your kids. So just a, just something to, to give you a chance, uh, to get a break in the day, something to look forward to in the week, but also just a, a an incredible opportunity to recenter you and your kids. Uh, so it's going to be geared toward younger kids. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you don't have kids, tune in and do the hand motions along with them. Nobody's going to judge you because nobody will see you. Uh, you can also uh, go to our homepage. I would encourage you to do this, trailheadonline.org. On our homepage, there are a couple links. One is, is if you want prayer requests, um, please fill that out. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to pray for you. There's also a place in that tab to share with us your needs. Um, our, our weekly newsletter is also posted there, tons of information and updates. I am excited. This week we are launching something we call Prayer Pods. Prayer Pods are our way to engage uh, one of our core practices, right? We have four, uh, excuse me, five core practices that come from Acts chapter 2, and one of them is prayer. And, uh, and during this season, man, um, we need to be praying. 
And so we are going to be putting out, we already did this week, a, a weekly prayer update, a, th- a list of things to pray for. And prayer pods are groups of people, uh, of three or more, that, that commit to meeting together uh, once a week, uh, virtually, right, through Google Hangout or Zoom or whatever, um, and, um, and then praying together through that list. Um, we believe that, that this is a critical time, a critical time to engage prayer. It's critical for us. Uh, and it's critical for the world because God not only works in us as we pray, he works through our prayers. I don't know exactly how all that works, how a sovereign God determines his will through the prayers of his people, but he does. And so we need to honor that. We need to engage that um, to be praying. Um, here's the thing. If you are in a spot where where you would love to engage prayer pods, but the reality is maybe you're still working a full-time job remotely, but you're also homeschooling your kids and you're having to take care of everything in the world and, and, and there's just no way you can add one more thing to your list. Uh, maybe because of the nature of your job, you're on Zoom calls eight to ten hours a day and you uh, are sick of virtual meetings. Um, you don't have to join a prayer pod to engage this prayer initiative. Just start grabbing that prayer update that we push out and pray with us, right? When you pray alone, just intentionally know you're praying with us as you pray for our leaders, for our elders, for the advancement of the gospel, for the safety of our, of our uh, loved ones, and for those that are our first responders. responders. So uh, just some resources I want to encourage you to engage. This morning we are going to be continuing in the book of Romans. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to go grab it. It, it is uh, a kind of a critical hinge in this passage. Uh, you can grab it on our website. I think the videos are still on Vimeo, um, but you can also get the audio on our website. Uh, that's probably the easiest place to stream it. I think it's also on the podcast. I'm not positive. Um, this is the 16th message in the book of Romans, and so you actually have the opportunity to go back and get totally caught up. If you've just joined us over the last couple of weeks, uh, there's a lot there. This has been an exciting book and a lot of of great material and some of you like 16 messages steve i'm i don't know if i can do that that's that's a lot of steve and 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 it is a lot of steve and i admit it but it's great material and meanwhile you're on your third run through of all nine seasons of the office i I think it's possible you can find the time to engage this material it will be a blessing to you okay it's worth the investment of your time Um, so paul in our passage is driving home the craziest thing ever. The, the craziest thing ever. Like there's no other religion on the face of the earth that would hold to this. God justifies sinners. God justifies the ungodly. Not, not those who deserve it, those that don't. Not those that have earned it, but those that can't. Not, not those that are religious. Not those that have their acts together. Not those that have all the self-control and all the self-will. Not those that, that, that have, have crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's. But those who can't even write. God justifies the ungodly. And He's able to do that because He paid the price to do it. He can be just and the justifier of the ungodly because Jesus took the just penalty of our sin on our behalf. He died under the weight of our cosmic treason. He took the penalty of our sin. And then when He rose, He did it in the victory that we can't earn over death. So when we believe in Jesus, we die with Jesus. Our sin is imputed to Christ and He dies under the weight of its penalty, making satisfaction for our guilt and removing our shame. And when He rises, His active righteousness, His obedience is imputed to us and we are covered with the very record of Christ. My sin is removed and His righteousness is graciously given. God justifies sinners. And He paid the price to do it. That's crazy. It's crazy. And it gets crazier because he makes this incredible gift available to us by grace. Right? He justifies by grace. Grace is undeserved favor, 
earned love, right? The definition we used previously, God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E, grace, right? God grace uh, justifies by grace alone. He, he, he just does it as a, a free gift of love. And the craziest thing about this is all he requires of us is that we receive it by faith. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. All God requires is that instead of trusting in our works, we trust in His. And instead of trusting our ability to make ourselves right, we, we trust in God's work to make us right. Instead of trusting in our self-salvation projects, we trust in God's salvation project. We trust, we believe in Jesus. This is Paul's central argument. God justifies sinners by grace alone, through faith alone. Now we're picking up in the middle of this argument in our text this morning. Uh, but don't worry, I'm going to go back and give you some context. Um, I'm just going to... This, this paragraph that we're looking at is very technical. Uh, it is in many ways very important. It's very rich. But it is very technical. And, and this, honestly, uh, on a normal week, would have been a very difficult passage for me to preach. Um, I found it especially hard this week to wrestle with, knowing what most of us are going through and, uh, and seeking not only to unpack the text, but to unpack it in a way that is relevant to our current situation. And so uh, stick with me in the technicality, okay? Because there's stuff here that's worth understanding. And then I'm going to try at the end, by the grace of God, to bring this home in a practical way to where we are and what we're dealing with. Now, I want to remind you of what we looked at a little bit last week at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, because these verses are what we're going to be discussing. So take a look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to look at the verses we're going to be discussing. So 1 through 8 to begin with. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In other words, if God justifies by grace through faith, what was Abraham's experience? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does Scripture say? Now he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted. It was imputed to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, not just Abraham, but David. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from the works of, uh, of the law. And he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. To those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, will not impute his sin. Because it's been imputed to another and he has an alien righteousness is what's implied in those verses. So Abraham and David last week were called as witnesses to support Paul's premise. God justifies by grace through faith. Abraham, that was his experience. David, that was his experience. And they both testify of it. This week, he's going to get a bit technical talking about how this plays out in the Jewish experience or specifically in relationship to the covenant of law, the, the Mosaic covenant. Take a look at verses 9 through 15 with me. Is this blessing then, this blessing of imputation of righteousness, only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that he had before he was circumcised. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, this blessing of imputation that was declared of Abraham that David sings about in his psalm, surely, the Jewish mind would say, surely, it's not for everyone. 
I mean, that doesn't make sense, that God would so indiscriminately bless everyone. He would make no distinctions between those who work hard at their religious behavior, that those that are already in a covenant relationship with God through the law, surely, surely it's for the circumcised. Surely the blessing that was promised to Abraham is ushered into humanity through the law. The covenant people of God, those that are set aside by this covenant and are walking in obedience to it. You guys, we talked about this a little bit last week. The Jews took great pride in their circumcision. It was their mark of being in the circle of God's covenant people. The law commanded that anybody born under the law be physically circumcised. And anybody who became a proselyte, anybody who was a a non-Jewish person who wanted to become a follower of Yahweh, the, the Jewish God, the God of all creation, they would enter through becoming a proselyte, and they had to become circumcised as, as part of entering into uh, the, the law, this Mosaic covenant that, that we know of as the Ten Commandments, but it's a lot more than that. It's, it's all the commandments, the hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament that, that uh, set the Jewish person and those that were part of Judaism apart from the rest of the world. Now, as a result, what ended up happening is, is through this process of division, not only did they find themselves different from the world and, in fact, weird on the world's stage uh, because the law governed everything, how they dressed, what they ate, how they worked, who they did business with, right? It set them apart and made them weird in so many ways. It didn't just divide them from the world. It made them prideful in comparison. In the Jewish mind, not only were they set apart from the world, but suddenly they now saw the world as two groups of people. There are the circumcised and the uncircumcised. There's us and there's them. There are the good guys and there are the bad guys. That was not God's intention. God did intend to set them apart and God did elect them that they might be a witness to all the world but he did not intend for them to take that setting apart as a point of pride. Uh, you ever heard of the Sneetches? I love me some uh, Dr. Seuss. Uh, Dr. Seuss is brilliant. My kid's favorite was Hop on Pop uh, because there was a very practical application tied to that story that they loved to practice. Uh, he, he published the story about Sneetches in 1961, and it's about uh, these things that inhabit the beach uh, and they're exactly the same, apart from, from some of them having a star on their belly. It's a difference with no significance. Absolutely no significance. But as you can guess, it soon became very important. I want to read you part of the story. Now, the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied sneeches had none upon bars. Those stars weren't so big, they were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star-bellied sneeches would brag, we're the best kind of sneech on the beaches. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain-bellied sort. And whenever they met some, When they were out walking, they'd hike right on past them without even talking. If you haven't read the story, go ahead and read the rest so that you can find out the climactic ending of this incredible story. Uh, Some of you are thinking, Steve, you have been isolated way too long. Why in the world are you talking about sneeches? Why are you reading Dr. Seuss? Because one of the basic truths of sinful humanity. One of the basic truths about humans since we've rebelled against God and and, and we now compete with God instead of rest in God. We now fight for our own glory instead of resting in the glory of God, fight for our own significance, fight for our own security, fight for our own comfort. Because of this, we're always looking for ways to feel superior to others. We're always looking for ways to one-up others, to find things, superficial irrelevant things that somehow make us better, superior, so that we can be in the good guys. And they're the bad guys, so that we'll be in and they'll be out. The Jews did this with their election. They were elected to responsibility. 
God elected them. He chose them as an ethnic group to be his witness to the nations, but they took their election as a privilege, not a responsibility, and they took it as a source of pride instead of a humble responsibility. We have it, you don't. And circumcision became the star that set them apart. And so they're wrestling as Paul is bringing this incredible truth of of justification, that God justifies sinners, the ungodly. By grace, through faith, they're struggling with what, then why why, why the law? Why were we set apart? Why circumcision? Why? So Paul's going to drive this home because it's not just why, it's how dare you. How dare you take away this point of pride from me? How dare you threaten this? I've worked so hard at this. I have worked so diligently. I have obeyed. I... So Paul's going to drive this home. Take a look at verse 10. How then was it counted? How, how then was righteousness counted to Abraham? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. And so he's making an argument from history, from chronology. Um, in our study books... On page 80 and 81, there's actually a chronology of Abraham's life that, that you might find really helpful. Um, I did. It's, it's a helpful tool. Uh, if you don't, by the way, if you don't have one of these, these are still available. We'd be happy to mail it to you. Just let us know, and, and we'll drop one in the mail or put it on Carrier Pigeon or whatever. Uh, but we'll get it to you. But I want to share with you this morning just a very, very brief timeline of Abraham's life because um, his argument now depends on, on a kind of a basic knowledge of the sequence of events. Okay, so so just to give you a little sense, in Genesis chapter 12, the, Abram was living in Ur of the Chaldees. He, he was uh, about 70 years old and he was childless. Uh, his wife, Sarah, was barren and, and was not able to give him children. And God showed up to him and basically said, Abram, walk this way. <laughs> I have a blessing for you. Walk this way. And, and Abram, miraculously crazy, uh, he picked up his family, he took all of his livestock, and he started walking that direction, Genesis 12. Genesis 15, God reappears to him and says, look, I will bless you. I reiterate, I will bless you. And in in chapter 15, verse 6, we have that verse that Paul's already quoted twice, that, that Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, it was imputed to him as righteousness. So in Genesis 15, he is actually declared righteous by God based on faith. Now in Genesis 15, God also then takes him through a formal covenant ceremony to drive home his promise. He's like, Abram, I promise to bless you, so I'm going to now create a covenant with you. And they went through the formal ceremony of, of, of killing the animals and spreading the carcasses. And then the way this was done in the old world is, is you would go hand in hand with the person you were covenanting with and walk through the pieces. And what you were saying was, if I don't uphold my side of the covenant, may this be done to me. This is a solemn agreement, and may I be slain like these animals if I don't uphold my side. But miraculously, in Genesis 15, God puts Abram to sleep, and God alone walks through the pieces, saying, I will bless you, and I am the only one on the hook for this thing. Which, of course, is a a beautiful foreshadowing of the fact that God himself would be slaughtered like those animals. That he would lay down his life in order to fulfill his covenant and fulfill his promise. So he enters into this covenant, but it's not a two-sided covenant. It's one-sided. It is an unconditional covenant. It is a covenant of promise. He says, I will bless you. Then in Genesis 17, right? That was Genesis 15. Two chapters later, Genesis 17 Abram is renamed Abraham. So he goes from being great father to a father of a great number. That's what those two names mean. So Abram becomes Abraham. So he renames him. as Not, just, not only are you great father, but you are going to be the father of a great number. You'll be the father of, of descendants like, like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore. And, and then he gives him a sign. He's like, look, remember that covenant we made? Here's the sign of that covenant. It's circumcision. So in Genesis 17, Abraham is circumcised as a sign of the covenant he received in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 21, when Abraham is about 100 years old and Sarah is about 99, well past childbearing years, Isaac, the son of promise, is born. It took about 30 years for God to fulfill his promise. We're going to talk more about that in coming weeks because that's significant. But Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. And Jacob is renamed Israel. 
And Israel is the father of 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Fast forward about 400 years to Exodus chapter 19, and those descendants of Abraham have now been delivered out of Egypt, and they're following Moses after they've been brought through the Red Sea, and they're brought to the, to the foot of Mount Sinai, and they enter into a covenant with God called the Mosaic Covenant. And in the Mosaic Covenant, that, that's the Ten Commandments and the Law. 400 years later, circumcision is made part of the law. So here's, here's the basic question. Was Abraham circumcised or uncircumcised when God declared him righteous? Well, obviously he was uncircumcised, right? He, he was declared righteous in Genesis 15. He wasn't circumcised until Genesis 17. Now there's two things going on here. The first is, is that Paul is making an argument based on chronology. Justification can't be based on circumcision when circumcision came after the declaration of justification, right? It just doesn't work that way. Um, and, and that means that the law which commands circumcision isn't the way God is going to bring justification. The law was never intended to justify. The law, the Ten Commandments, the, Moses, the, 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 the covenant of Moses wasn't given to make Israel right with God. It wasn't given to make you right with God. It, it wasn't given so that it could become part of your self-salvation, self-improvement project. It was given to make you aware of your need. It wasn't given to make you right. It was given to make you aware of your need to be made right by grace. Paul continues in verse 11. He says the purpose at the end of verse 11, the purpose was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would not be counted or imputed to them so it could be imputed to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but, us who walk, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The sequence of events. He says the purpose of this. Paul says the purpose of this. The sequence of events had a purpose. This was not an accident. The purpose of this was so that Abraham could become the father of a family of blessing. Father Abraham would be the father of all who would be blessed. The blessing, God said, I will bless you, Abraham, and I will bless your seed, your descendants. And, and, and in that blessing, I will give you an inheritance. It's in that blessing, I will give you fullness of life. And in that blessing, I will, I will bless you. And that blessing was given not just to Abraham, but to all who would become the children of Abraham. And Paul's making a very, very careful but important distinction. Not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Those that became the children of Abraham by, by, by experiencing the faith of Abraham. Those who believed in Jesus, those who believed the promises of God become the children of Abraham. Not the physical descendants, not, not those that are of the law, not those that have physical circumcision, but them too if they also have faith. That little phrase, as long as they're not merely circumcised. <laughs> right? Um, but if they're actually circumcised. If you want to enter the blessing of God, you need to enter the same way Abraham did, by faith. And what a blessing it is. Um, this blessing has a sign, he says. It has a, a sign that acts as a seal, and it's circumcision. Circumcision is a symbolic, physical manifestation of a real spiritual experience. Abraham was justified by God. That was a spiritual, invisible truth. Physical circumcision became the physical expression of that spiritual truth. Circumcision is the symbol, not the substance. Physical, circum physical circumcision is, is the, the uh, representation, not the reality. 
If you have circumcision but don't have faith, you don't have justification. In our modern context, it would be very similar to baptism. Baptism is a spiritual representation of a spiritual reality. Jesus died and rose again, and we believe in Him. We are His death, right? Our sin is imputed to Him in His death, and He dies for our sin. And then His righteousness is imputed to us in His resurrection. And, and when we are physically baptized, taken under the water, baptizo means to immerse. When you, are, when you are immersed under those waters and brought back up, it is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. Now, here's the thing. As long as you have faith, there is great meaning and power in baptism. But the true meaning and power comes from the experience of grace through faith, not the baptism itself. Being baptized doesn't make you a Christian. Being baptized has no power without the faith of which it symbolizes, right? Being baptized as a Christian uh, without having the faith of a Christian doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. What makes you a Christian is faith in Christ, being, being of the faith of your father Abraham. You need to have the reality of having received the gift of grace through faith for the symbol to become a seal. It can only seal what's already there in reality. Circumcision, he says, as long as they are not merely circumcised. If all they have is circumcision, they're not children of Abraham. Not in a spiritual sense. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And he has secured through this gift of grace the blessing for all who will become his children. Take a look at verse 13. For the promised Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would become heir of the world. God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, very, very specific things. And, and one of the things that he promised was an inheritance. And, and in fact, in those passages, I think it's in Genesis 17, the, the boundaries of that land are very, very clearly defined. It is a piece of real estate right along the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. What we now know of as Israel, it's often referred to as the promised land, and now you know why it's called the promised land, <laughs> because it was the land promised to Abraham in, in Genesis. Um, but it's very, very clearly defined. It is, it is a very large piece of real estate right next to the Mediterranean, a piece of land that's much larger than what Israel currently inhabits. Um, but, but Paul does something really interesting in verse 13. He says that God promised him the world. Take a look at verse 13, right? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir, not of a, of a piece of real estate along the side of the Mediterranean, but heir of the world. Didn't come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The piece of land that was promised was promised, but it wasn't all that was implied by the promise. This is often how the promises of God work. God gives a promise, but the promise that he gives is often the tip of the iceberg of the blessing. God gives a promise, but the promise is so much bigger, so much more beautiful, so much more transformative than we can ever imagine, right? It'd be like me promising to, to buy you a Corvette. And then when you show up to pick up the keys, I actually give you all the documentation so that you now own GM. And you're like, dude, that wouldn't be a blessing right now. Okay, maybe it wouldn't, but you have a lot of Corvettes, okay? My point is that, that God will give you what he promises you, but he will give you so much more. Because the promises, what God promises, they're always better than we expect. God promised in the world. Abraham would receive a redeemed, restored, flourishing world. Not, not just a piece of real estate by the Mediterranean Sea but the world as it was created to be when Christ returns and he restores his kingdom 
the children of Abraham, the spiritual children of Abraham will receive the blessing of being co-heirs with Christ, reigning in his glory and honor over a redeemed and restored created order. Now, verses 14 and 15, Paul reiterates that this blessing can only come through faith or law, that these are competing paradigms. Let me just run through those real fast. For if the adherents of the law, that is the Jewish people that are under the Mosaic Code and obeying it in order to receive blessing, if they're the ones who are to be blessed, to be the heirs of the world, faith is null and promises void. Because it can only come through one structure or the other, right? You can't make a promise and then say you have to earn it because it's no longer a promise. Then it's a wage that's due, right? So it's one or the other. Uh, verse 15, for the law brings wrath. Now, if that is your paradigm, you're never going to get the blessing. Why? Because the law brings wrath. You can't keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the hundreds of other laws in the Old Testament. You just can't because your heart is continually driven by disordered desires, right? So for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Um, <laughs> technical argument, the word transgression. He's not saying where there is no law, there's no sin. He's already made the point that all have sinned and, and lack the glory of God. What he's saying is where there's no law, there's no transgression. If there's no rule, there's nothing for me to transgress, right? So it's a technical argument basically saying the law has been taken out of the way and with it, transgression has been taken out of the way and Christ has atoned for our sin. It has to either be through law or by faith. All right, that's our technical passage. Huh. Um, how do I drive this home? Right? That's what I was. How do I take this, which is beautiful? I mean, theologically, I love the currents and the complexity, but how do I make it relevant to us today? How do I make it relevant to you this morning? I got three points for you, and I'm hitting them quickly. The first big change offers a chance for repentance and lament. And you're like, how in the world do you get that out of this passage? Big change offers a chance for repentance and lament. Let me tell you to repent. Repent is one of those words, religious words, $10 religious word that most of us don't like. It just sounds so dark and people who say it are often angry. Go repent. Repentance is God's gift of change. Who doesn't want that? Repentance is beautiful, right? Who wants to be trapped in, in all of their dead end lifestyle choices? Who wants to be trapped in all of the ways they are robbing themselves of joy? Repentance is God's gift of joy. And to repent is to reject the lie that is driving your behavior and mortify the sinful desires that are leading you to it. That's what it means to repent. To lament is to express your sorrow to God and your longing to God when you are in pain of not receiving what you deeply desire. So one is, is mortifying the disordered desires and the other is crying out to God in sorrow for the lack of fulfillment of those deep and meaningful desires. Remember, disordered desires are good desires that take us to the wrong place, right? Uh, consuming pornography, yeah, that's sinful, right? That's not healthy, it's not good, it's, it doesn't glorify God. The deep desire for intimacy, the deep desire for security, the deep desire for comfort, those are good desires. But they've been disordered in their core, so that they're trying to find their fulfillment in a place that it can't be fulfilled. So you have to mortify the sinful desire that takes you to the wrong place, but lament and have sorrow for the fact that, that, that there is a gap, that you have a deep need that's not being met, that there is a place of pain. The, so lament is the difference between com complaining to God and grumbling at God. Right? Complaining to God means I bring my sorrow, I bring my frustration, I bring my pain to Him. Grumbling means I just do it to myself. I hate this, this is stupid, this is too painful, this is and I'm only talking to myself. I'm simply amplifying my, my, my pain and my frustration. Repentance and lament go hand in hand. Repentance and lament are interdependent experiences. Let me show you where I get this from the passage. I was thinking about this. It's kind of interesting. The Jews in this passage needed their theology corrected, right? And, and as a result, there was a piece of this where, where the Jewish mind needed to repent, right? Because they took pride in the law instead of being humbled by the gift of the law, by, by seeing their election as a thing of, of privilege instead of responsibility, 
They needed to repent, but they also needed to lament because they were being asked to give up a core of their cultural identity. They were being asked to give up all the shared experiences they had with their family and extended family. When a Jewish person became a believer, they became an outcast from the Jewish community because they were no longer part of us, they became part of them. They were having to pay a ridiculously high price. They had disordered desires that led them to pride, but the heart of those desires, the need for for community, the need for acceptance, the need for significance were good things. They needed to repent They needed to lament. And we need to do both as well. But we need to discern what needs to be mortified and what needs to be mourned. We need to discern what requires repentance and what requires lamenting. Some of you are discovering in this season of difficulty that you don't know who you are without your daily work. And it's creating a tremendous amount of anxiety for you. Instability insecurity, tension, irritability. Well, you need to repent of being a workaholic, of finding your identity in your productivity, of finding your identity and and your significance in your achievements. And, And because that's been limited, you now feel vulnerable, you now feel exposed, you feel weak, you feel shame. You need to repent of finding your identity in your work, but you also need to mourn the fact that you have lost the opportunity to be productive for the glory of God and for the good of others. You need to mourn that your deep, deep needs for security, your deep needs for significance, your your deep, deep needs for, for productivity are being redirected because they are not being fully satisfied in this age. We need to mortify the sin. We need to mourn the pain. Some of you are discovering what it's like (laughs) to be called to love kids you don't currently like. You have an idealized version of your kids in your head that you would love to spend all of your time with. (laughs) And now that you get to spend all of your time with your kids, you realize they are not the idealized version you dreamed that they would be, and you always knew they weren't. You need to repent of only loving idealized people and not loving the real people in your home. But you also need to lament that what you're seeing is the effects of our first parents' rebellion and our own sin playing out in the small confines of our homes. As our children are speaking selfishly and and acting out in anger, as we are speaking selfishly and acting out in anger, we need to lament that we are not what we are created to be and we are not experiencing what we are created to experience. It is good to feel sorrow. It is good to to lament that pain to God. We need to mortify and we need to mourn. Secondly, big change offers us a chance to focus on what doesn't change. When everything is changing around us, we have a chance to refocus on what doesn't. Um, The Jewish people were facing a complete upheaval in their understanding of the world. As Paul was coming and saying, the law isn't what justifies you. This isn't what defines you. It isn't what makes you the people of God. They were facing a complete upheaval in their understanding of themselves and of the world and of their relationship with God. But in the middle of all of that, he's still calling them to refocus on what was and is still true about their relationship with God, that God has always been and continues to be a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that that has not changed. It's simply their perspective that has changed. And we need to do the same. The love of God that gave you comfort is the same love that will comfort you still, even as you go through turbulent times. Maybe maybe the love of God isn't currently coming to you on the terms or in a way you know, that, that you like that supports your, your low-maintenance, hassle-free life. Everything's hard right now, right? Everything is, is full of anxiety. Maybe it's putting you in a spot that you feel exposed or, or, or making you feel things that you hate. Maybe making you feel weak or uncomfortable or or put out or, or exhausted. But listen, God has not changed. God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And in times like this, we need to let go of our idealized versions that we demand of life. I want my life to be like this if it's going to have any meaning. We need to let go of what was and refocus on what is. This gives us the opportunity to focus on what doesn't 
change because that's what lasts. That's what's real. That's what gives life. What is good? What still spurs your heart to gratitude? What still awakens within you? Joy. Thirdly, big change offers a shift in perspective, a necessary shift in perspective. When life is easy, we have a way of seeing life from a very, very specific angle, and we think it's the only way to see life. The Jewish people lost in, in, in the revelation of, of Jesus as being the Savior of all people, circumcised and uncircumcised, the, that, the one who would justify the ungodly. They lost their exclusive claim to God, which they never really had, but they imagined they did. That's a huge thing to lose, but what did they gain? According to verse 13, everything. They gained the whole world. Instead of just receiving a piece of real estate by the Mediterranean Sea, they have become the heirs of the entire recreated, restored, glorious world, co-heirs with Christ and along with all the rest of this glorious, diverse family of faith. All who have faith in Jesus, those who have believed God and have been counted together in Him as righteous, in times of upheaval and loss and discomfort. Look around to see what you haven't been seeing. Allow the discomfort to awaken within you a new perspective that is difficult and hard and at first is unwelcome, but ultimately allows you to see the work of God in new and beautiful ways. It was there all along, but often we are reticent to see what we don't see because it often costs what we don't want to give to enter into it. It requires a shift in our perspective to see it. All right, so some real talk, y'all, some real talk. Some of our marriages are really going to struggle in this season. The divorce rate in Italy has spiked. You put people together with unresolved issues in a really, really tight and confined space, and those unresolved issues go from, from simply being an occasional pain point to being the thing in the center of the room at all times. Some of us, on the other hand, are going to find our marriages strengthened as we deal with things we otherwise wouldn't have dealt with. As we mourn and mortify, repent and lament, as we learn to give thanks instead of grumble, as we learn to put another person first, their real person, not their idealized version. Some of us are going to get swallowed by our addictions in this season. Pornhub, I think, has seen like a 700% increase in use over the course of the last uh, three weeks as people have moved into isolation. Some people are going to get swallowed by their addictions. Others are going to, are going to find newfound liberation. Because instead of, of going to numbness, instead of going to indulgence to run from the anxiety or to calm the fear, or to, they, are, they are going to be instead forced to see their need and to see the glory of God's grace as a way to meet that need in a way they never have before. You can see what you haven't previously seen. Listen, we're either going to embrace God's grace in this time of suffering and allow it to expand our vision of His goodness. Or we are going to pull back into self-pity, pride, and entitlement. And the bad things are going to get worse. Let's be the people who push forward into grace. Let's be the people who follow the faith of our father Abraham who leave Ur of Chaldees, leave the comfort because God has asked us to and we don't really have a choice and go into the unknown, but know that even in the unknown, we have a God who knows. Even as we step out into the, the, the difficulty, we have a God who cares. Even as we feel anxiety about our vulnerability, we have a God who's still in control. Let's push forward into grace. Let me remind you this morning in closing, your greatest debt has been paid. Your greatest problem has been solved. And your greatest blessing has already been given. Let's be people of faith pushing forward into grace.
All right, it is time for us to share communion together. Uh, those of you at home, if you have prepared your communion, um, all you need is, is a little bit of bread and, and um, wine, juice, or other colored liquid, um, and, uh, and we can share this together. If you are a follower of Christ, uh, we invite you to share communion with us. Um, even though we are scattered, uh, we believe we are gathered spiritually during this time through this incredible gift of technology. And as we share this, it's not, not a personal experience. It is a corporate experience in which we are celebrating that together we have a God who loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us and rise again. So as we break the bread, we remind ourselves that this represents the broken body of Christ. And as we take the cup, we remind ourselves that this is his blood spilt for us. And as we eat it, eat the bread and drink the cup, we, we celebrate our faith. We celebrate his grace. We just express our faith, <laughs> right? That this incredible gift was made free to us and we simply receive it. By eating it, all we're saying is, I receive, I receive this gift. I respond to this love. I accept this, this beautiful gift of grace. So let's, let's go ahead and uh, do our, our, um, our liturgy, uh, our communion liturgy together. Read the underlined portions along with me. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for your broken body. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Lord, for your spilled blood. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. There we go. That was uh, quite sealed. All right, y'all. The body of Christ. For you. The spilled blood of Christ. For you. Receive it in grace and gratitude, follower of Christ. Let's continue worshiping. 